Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hey guys, Mike Lewis here. And today we've got a really interesting topic and a very special guest. We've got um, topic today is sponsorship analytics, sports sponsorship analytics. And we have Nick Mentel joining us. Nick is a Vice President of Sponsorship Insights at Vantage. How are you doing today, Nick? Doing well, Mike. Thank you for having me on. If you're not familiar with Vantage, how would you describe what Vantage does? I don't think I can do it justice. So we profess ourselves as uh, experts in data-driven marketing analysis and insights. Uh, And that manifests itself in a number of different ways. It could be primary research. In my particular vertical or discipline, it's sponsorship analysis. We have experts in big data research and analysis, and as well as a a credit union-specific product. Uh, We help credit unions aggregate a bunch of customer data. It could be credit information, uh, checking your spending information, mortgage data, and, and then essentially try to tailor their marketing programs to various market segments. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on today, Nick. I mean, so just as your description of what what you do and what Vantage does, I think you're perfect for this, okay? So aspects of big data, data data-driven approaches to essentially marketing and sports sponsorship, okay? Sports sponsorship is something that, um, I think it's actually something that doesn't quite get enough attention in this world of sports marketing or sports analytics. When When I talk about these subjects, very often I'm in the realm of uh, you know, an- analytics related to a player or analytics related to a fan. But I think a big part of the action in this world and a big part of where the opportunities are is in terms of sponsorship analytics. How did you, um, how did you find your way to this? Uh, it was a circuitous route for sure. <laughs> uh, so I have a background in finance and then consulting. Uh, I was working in Wall Street for a few years after undergrad and then went to management consulting after business school, which was kind of a good way to collect uh, abilities in both analysis, presentation skills, uh, which are fairly industry agnostic. I had an interest in sports. This agency is an excellent intersection of business and sports. And so I joined here five years ago, May of 2013. And the agency has traditionally done a lot of business in the world of sponsorship specifically sports and entertainment. Well, let me um, 
I'm going to, I know where I'm going with this, but let me lead in with something a little, um, little vague. So why do you have an interest in sports? I, I think it's a product of environment. Nurture more than nature. I grew up in a household with a, uh, a mother who was a, a diehard Alabama football fan. Okay. <laughs> and uh, we grew up in, in St. Louis, so we would go to a lot of Cardinals games and uh, just happened to develop a passion for, maybe it was repeated exposure, uh, but develop a passion for. Did your mother go to uh, Alabama? She went to UAB, but I have a lot of family who went to, to Alabama, a lot of cousins, aunts, uncles, so we're certainly exposed to it constantly. Okay, and so you've, you've got exposure to uh, the realm of sports, a lot of, lot of exposure. It's coming from the family, they're taking out to the games. What are you a fan of? Are you a fan of the Cardinals? Die hard. Die hard? Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they were actually, coming back to my mother, she was in the hospital giving birth to me the week that they won the 1982 World Series. Uh, so maybe it was fate, but uh, but yeah, always been my primary team. Okay, and so when you when you attach the Cardinals to something, fast food franchise or uh, consumer product, I look at their stadium name. How about Light Beer? Light Beer. Better. Okay. What does it mean when someone puts the Cardinals on top of a product? Does that make you like that product better? Even, and, and I think this is a kind of an unfair question. It's like a big question, right? It's something that people don't think about. Sure, and I don't know if people recognize their own reaction to that type of exposure. There is a, an association with the brand. Uh, it's not marketing by persuasion, but rather association. I have a faith and a confidence and an emotional attachment to that Cardinals brand. And when Bush Beer or Bud Light is attached to that, because I see that stadium name every time they play a game, there is a subtle prod that I may not even be recognizing is happening, but it is happening. Do you, do you um, I mean, as someone works in this industry, you're, you're more likely to think about this than, than other folks. Do you think about your associations with sports franchises and how they map onto products and how that might make, did you sort of go through the process of, oh, Cardinals are great, I love them, they're loyal, family, I, I don't know, successful, that maps onto this product, and then how does that make me feel better about the product or indifferent? I mean, you know, how these things actually work on the psychological level. I'm aware of it, I think, because of the industry in which I work, but I don't know how much behavior it drives. I think when I look for a product, it may be because a matter of convenience or, or a, a certain deal that a website is running. But having said that, I'm probably more susceptible to this emotionally attached marketing than I realize. We probably all are. I guess that brings me to sort of the topic of today. And so when you start to think about sponsorships and you start to think about, well, maybe I should take a, make, take a step back. And so when, you, when you're working in the industry in terms of sponsorships, in general, where are you starting from? You're starting from the team. You're starting from the, the brands. How do these projects tend to evolve? Based on the nature of our clientele, uh, the majority originates from the brand side. And if you think about a property, let's, let's be local. SunTrust Park is a stone's throw from our office. The Braves are a singular brand, but they work with arguably dozens of brands in stadium. You can walk or do a lap around SunTrust and you'll see dozens of logos. So purely from an opportunity standpoint, there's more opportunity in the brand side than there is the property yeah. side. I, w- I was at a game last week, and from the seats, you actually almost get a uh, sort of a picture of Atlanta business 
you know, you, you look out there and uh, literally there's Coca-Cola in front of you, Delta a little bit to the left, SunTrust over your shoulder. Home Depot. Home Depot. You think it even through, in addition to, let's say, the architecture of the stadium in terms of what's, what's arrayed, the event also has different aspects of uh, brand sponsorship. Have you been out to the Braves? Uh, I'm sure you have. Yes, I, <laughs> I, I married into a, a diehard Braves okay. family. My wife's a diehard, so we, we certainly go. And this is a little bit of an aside, right, for, for the folks not in Atlanta, but I think two of the more interesting, at least to the fans, examples of sponsorships are the races they're running these days. Yeah, the tool race and the beat the freeze race, the latter of which has gained a lot of public notoriety nationwide. Right. So the the tool races, I think almost every every stadium almost has a, a some version of the tool race. So in, in Atlanta, it's the Home Depot. What is it? It's like a drill. It's a drill. A, uh, a bucket. A spackle bucket. <laughs> That's right. And then, but beat the freeze is something that I think gets a lot of attention locally. Uh, that's uh, who who does that one? That's uh, racetrack. Racetrack. The the beat the freeze is a. I actually ended up looking it up. It's a uh, it's a member of the Braves ground crew, I believe, who was a collegiate track athlete, and they select a fan and they race around the the outfield dirt, giving the fan a pretty significant head start. So with that in mind, and maybe this is too broad or too big of a question, if we just take like one of these races, how do you think about these kind of problems in terms of what you do? So I'll take a step back. And I'll admit I'm fixated on beat the freeze right now. So I know it's funny. A lot of the country has been and they apportion it out. I don't believe that happens every game. And so it's an event whenever it does come around. So from a broader perspective, it's challenging because how, how does racetrack associate that event with additional sales of gas or concessions at their convenience stores. It's very challenging. If, if every Braves game attendee to, could take their ticket stub, turn it in, and it was scanned, and then they get 10% off of their fuel purchase, then perhaps you could there could be some sort of attribution method. But yeah, can it, I, And I just please. want to slow down, because I, I think this is really kind of key. And I, I think, you know, we, we live in kind of this world of marketing, but just to almost slow it down a little bit, you think about the immense challenge of something like this. You're running a promotion in front of 30,000 people. How do you then figure out what that promotion is doing? You're, you're associating the Braves. Sorry, you're, you're associating racetrack with this event and let's call it the fourth or fifth inning. How do you figure out what you're getting out of that? Is that correct? From a, a value standpoint? Well, or an, well I'm just an, saying, so the, the, the general principle, racetrack pays some money to do this event. How do they know what it's actually getting them? Right. That's the $30,000 question, or in this case, probably a lot more than <laughs> that. Yes. So we go about that, answering that question in two ways. One is, and the, the easiest, if the information is publicly available, is comparable data. If you think about the stadium name itself as SunTrust. SunTrust is spending millions of dollars per year because of TV exposure, because of on-site exposure. Even the interstate, both 75 and 285, get a lot of eyeballs on that SunTrust name each day. Because Atlanta has various market attributes that may compare to a New York or a Phoenix or Seattle or a Miami, and those cities have their own naming rights deals in place, we can essentially try to triangulate what that deal should be based on those market factors. And so just to um, you know, put it in context for a lot of folks, it's like when you're buying a house, right? Exactly. What the real estate agent pulls is, in fact, comparables. And so you look at those, you know, 
correct me, you look at the various attributes. In the case of a house, it's square footage, number of bathrooms. I guess if you have granite countertops, stainless steel appliances, right? And so for a lot of these sponsorship deals, you're pulling these attributes of population. So in, in Atlanta, the um, SunTrust Park, the new Brave Stadium, is located at the intersection of a couple of freeways, which you know creates a traffic nightmare, but it's marketing a marketing gold mine, I suppose. So 75 and 85 basically are where the Braves have located the new stadium. Yeah, and there was a lot of public reaction, vitriol maybe too strong a word, but to them moving out here to what was called the suburbs, but from a, an exposure standpoint, it's actually been uh, a home run for them, pardon the pun. Uh, and, and to your previous question, We've looked at, let's take Major League Stadiums in particular, there are generally two factors that are relatively key when determining the value of that annual naming right sponsorship. One is uh, market size. So New York tends to be the largest for obvious reasons. MetLife Stadium for the Jets and Giants is one of the leaders uh, in that regard in terms of annual value. And the second is media exposure. And there's typically a pretty strong correlation between market size and media exposure. But SunTrust is a good example of sort of a non-traditional media exposure that a stadium may get that uh, something in a larger market may not necessarily see. So when you're talking exposure, you're you're trying to add up essentially everything. uh, And by exposure, it's like the number of times an eyeball sees something, right? That's correct. That could be on site, that could be on your TV, uh, hearing the brand on radio, uh, social media, digital, etc. I guess in some ways the previous location was actually really an interesting location as well. And the, the, the previous location for Turner Field was uh, south of the city, which is interesting in that it was on the way to the airport, right? It was. So you almost had, you know, sort of an immense amount of traffic every, you know, I mean, it's a big city, but on the road to the airport. So media exposure, number of times people are going to hear this on radio, on TV, um, population, um, people seeing it from, from the road. I think of those as almost like population counts. Do you guys get into, do you add more data to that? We rely on as much primary data as possible. So There are certainly estimates involved in any process like this. Uh, It's impossible to secure 100% uh, completed data. But we'll use something like Department of Transportation estimates from the city of Atlanta or the state of Georgia to supplement that, to essentially add a degree of scientific rigor behind our estimates. Do you you look at uh, additional demographics, like the, um, so not just the the eyes that are seeing the stadium, but let's say the, the income of the eyes that are seeing the stadium? Absolutely. Uh, And that's a good example. I mean, that's one of the reasons the Braves moved to where they moved. They looked at their ticket purchasers, and there weren't many south of the city. So essentially, they moved to the suburbs where uh, all the majority of their season ticket holders are, and they're fishing where the fish are. But we do that for the brands as well. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at a particular brand that resonates with a certain gender, a certain age, a certain ethnicity... We will also do a similar analysis for a property to try to align those two. A million-dollar sponsorship may not make sense for two brands if the brand resonance for one of those properties is much stronger than the other. Chick-fil-A may not spend the same amount of money in New York City where there are two locations as they would in Atlanta because there are a lot uh, more opportunities to interact with potential consumers 
do you think of Atlanta as a um, sort of a split market? And, and maybe this kind of goes to what you're saying in, in terms of like, you know, well, uh, you know, Chick-fil-A may not be as impactful in New York because of the number of locations. But even if you've got 6 million people in Atlanta versus, let's say, 20 million in, 20 million in, in New York, do you guys start to think about that, well, there's only, I don't know, maybe there's 3 million that are baseball fans and there's only a million that are basketball fans, sort of almost breaking it down further? We do think about it as a bit of a Venn diagram. So it's not as clean as to say there's this one, Group A is just Braves fans, Group B is just Falcons fans, Group C just Hawks fans. And that's actually been one of the interesting success stories of uh, Atlanta United, how they've pulled from a large Hispanic market a young millennial audience, a bit of a a hipster audience. (laughs) They've targeted an LGBTQ audience very effectively. Uh, Soccer moms and families go to those games. So I'd like to believe that that is the future of Atlanta sports. Um, But yeah, it's certainly a bit more segmented with the traditional franchise. And I guess my mind just went there. It's like as you're doing this kind of comparable analysis, do you start to just... Yeah, I mean, you could probably almost drive yourself crazy, right, in terms of slicing and dicing, in terms of, you know, and again, to make it like a real estate analogy, it's like, well, the kitchen's this size, but it doesn't have stainless steel, right? It's like, so where where do you, how far do you take it is, I think, an interest, it's an interesting question to me as an academic. There, there can be a bit of paralysis by analysis. So we will, we'll, we'll approach a problem with our two methods, looking at comps and then looking okay. at volume of impressions, applying CPM values to those impressions. And, you know, if there are intangible factors... Can I, can I ask you to de- uh, just um, define that? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, jumping ahead here. Yeah. So there are four factors involved in a, an impressions-based methodology. Uh, there is the number of potential impressions. So we talked about racetrack. How many eyeballs may... That, that racetrack logo may be seen by X number of individuals. Uh, and again, that could be on site, that could be uh, on TV, it could be online, on a deadspin story after the fact, etc. The second is the number of times each of those individuals happens to see that logo. The third factor is the percent of total potential audience that then sees that logo. And the fourth is the CPM value, or uh, that stands for cost per milli or cost per thousand impressions. Essentially, should I pay $25, $30, $50 to get a thousand eyeballs on my brand? And there's a lot of industry research, and this is somewhat hypothetical, and it varies by industry as well, but essentially it's pricing out what each type of asset should be. Can you you go back on that? So... I heard a couple of things, and so it's like pricing out what each asset should be. What what assets are you talking about? We could be talking about static signage in a stadium, okay. LED signage. Uh, again, it could be a social media post. Okay, and and so I think if you look at really, and in, in doesn't have to be Atlanta specific. You look at any sports facility in America, there's sponsorships everywhere, right? And so you got to put a price tag on each different element. Without that, the the thing that I was, that I heard that I wanted you to talk a little bit more about was putting a value on each impression. So how do you figure out what each impression is worth? It's, it's and it's a, okay if this is as much art as science. And that's, yeah. that's a fair way to describe it because while there is more science, especially in social and digital channels where we can 
essentially identify attribution through click-throughs or some sort of conversion rate. That is more challenging with an on-site visual. Can, can I, and I, I hate to keep asking you to define things, can you define attribution? Just because I, I think that is something that we talk a lot about in the world of marketing analytics. But what is an attribution or an attribution model for the, for the folks listening? Uh, simply defined, can we credit a particular marketing program or advertisement to or at least partially toward a sale? Okay. And, and you know, th this is one of those ones where I think it's, it's helpful to just, like, take a step back and think about just how complicated the world is to appreciate how complicated a task is. I mean, we, we live in a world of marketing, right? On the, on the drive over here, you know, how many marketing exposures do we see in terms of billboards? How many radio ads do we hear? And then you think about the, the question of like, and it's not only that, right? It's what I, what, all the stuff I saw yesterday too, and what I saw online and what I saw on my phone to actually then sort of figure out, well, what's driving what? Good luck, Nick. How do you guys do that? <laughs> We, and that's where the art uh, <laughs> element is involved. So we use generally accepted market rates. Uh, there, there's a bunch of industry research in this field. And so at some point, we, and by extension, our clients have to rely on the fact that there is a precedent for some assumptions and that you will not be able to attribute or credit each of these advertisements to a particular sale. There, there's certainly a degree of faith involved. But I'll also say there is a precedent for investment. And if it didn't work, there wouldn't have been $23 billion invested just in North America alone in sponsorship in 2017 and $65 billion worldwide. So it's, it's accepted as yeah. a practice. Well, and I think that's a good, I think that's a good point, this issue that um, we have faith in it because it exists. I almost want to translate that to like the notion that, um, and you tell me, if, tell me if I'm wrong on this, that it's almost like, in some ways, look, we can collect data. Data's great, right? And we love to analyze data. But sometimes we kind of hit a wall and we run into limitations. And so then we're going to rely on assumptions. What I kind of heard you saying is it's almost like we're relying on an assumption of an efficient market. Is that fair? Almost going back to finance 101? Largely, yes. Thankfully, we've had enough instances with our client relationships to identify some inefficiencies in certain cases and, and take advantage or try to shore up those efficiencies that a certain client may have. So yes, the market is largely efficient, but it's also a little uh, opaque at times uh, yeah. just because a, a client A may not know what client B is, but then they're both, they're both sponsoring the Braves and the Braves may take advantage of that disparity. So, uh, so there, there is an efficiency, but not everything is as clear as a supermarket where you can see all the prices on the shelves. Well, but, but that's it exactly, right? So the market is, the market is constantly, um, I guess, experimenting. The teams are negotiating. The brands are negotiating. Some ideas are good. Some ideas are bad. And over time, I mean, it's an interesting thing about you guys, potentially. Uh, you guys are sort of the learning entity in all this, right? Uh, yeah, we, we're able to collect uh, substantial data as a result of this. It's kind of an interesting thing, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm an analytics guy, but I'm actually sort of very um, flexible in my orientation in terms of, you know, I, I, think you gotta, I think you gotta do all sorts of things. You gotta look at data, you gotta have some theory, and you gotta learn, which is kind of an interesting topic these days. And In some ways, when I hear what you guys do, it's almost like you guys are, you know, it's, it's almost like what people try and replicate with artificial intelligence, right? 
you guys have the experience. You see what works. You see what don't work, and you advise your you advise your clients. Um, let me ask you: Do you have any, um, let's say, case studies or interesting examples that that we can share with the, the listeners today? Uh, sure, we we have one of these case studies on our website. Uh, if any listeners are interested in, in specifics, but Georgia Power is one of our sponsorship clients, one of the agency's clients at large. And they are heavy investors in the Atlanta and Georgia at large uh, sponsorship arena, for lack of a better term. Uh, they have relationships with the Falcons and United, with the Hawks, with the Braves, University of Georgia, Georgia Tech, Mercer, uh, a number of smaller universities. And so this is, a, this is a basic utility company, right? Exactly. And they're a bit of a difference in that case. Whereas company A may be trying to sell widgets, Georgia Power is more interested in customer satisfaction. And so we're, we are trying, we're, we're estimating their investment, the value of that investment, but it's not from a sales conversion perspective. So the, the primary uh, goal of our research is slightly skewed in that case, but the methodology underlying everything is the same. So, so again, it's the same notion of, um, well, how many, how many eyeballs are you generating? How many, people are, how many times are people seeing the association between Georgia Power and the Braves? Or the Falcons. And then I always, I, again, I will always think this is kind of a fascinating thing. It's like, then there's this issue, right, of, well, the, the power company of the Braves, does that make them like me more as my power company, right? <laughs> uh, yes, that's, that's well put. So a lot of this is, we call it sort of secondary market research in terms of looking at numbers, in terms of exposures. Do you get involved in the primary, almost more focus group kind of research of what is the, what is the impact of associating the Braves with the, with the power company? We do. Uh, it, it's certainly a minority of the work that we do. Okay. But it's important for two reasons. One, uh, clients have specific questions that market research that exists today may not be able to answer. And so we have to go out and, and seek those answers ourselves through primary research. And two, it gives our organization more credibility if we have done that type of research as opposed to relying on a third party. Well, and, and one of the things, and you tell me if you guys view it differently, one of the things I think that's important in this kind of analytics, the sponsorship analytics, is almost like triangulation, right? Because so much of it is kind of mysterious, right? I mean, you know, it, we're, we're not just, you know, you run an ad and you see how many people show up at the store the next day, right? It, it's almost more passive. And I think a lot of what's happening is between the ears, you know, in terms of, in terms of customers being exposed to this stuff. That's, no, it's, it's true. It, it's certainly challenging. Uh, we have research that indicates a sponsorship, a, f- a fan of a team that contracts to a particular sponsor is 44% more likely to purchase that sponsor's goods and more than twice as likely to advocate that product to someone else. So in theory, yes, uh, it may be psychology between the ears uh, and the research exists indicating that it is effective, but if you're investing tens of thousands, perhaps millions of dollars, you want a little more than that. Yeah, well, and that, that's interesting to me. And, you know, as, a, as an academic, I probably want to keep drilling down, but the companies actually just want to know what it matters, right? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> well, let me ask you, as we um, sort of progress in this conversation, where, where do you think sponsorship's going to go? I mean, you know, sports is an interesting, um, sports is an interesting business. And I think we all, we all love sports. We're all attracted to it. And 
we're attracted to it because we grew up with it and it's kind of cool and we all wanted to play, etc. Sports has, you know, played an important role for, let's say, cable TV in terms of, you know, keeping people attached to it. You know, there's there's a real power in it. And so where do you, you know, this, this stuff obviously isn't going to disappear. Do you think it's going to evolve to something different? I would not expect any macro changes in the near term. I think we'll continue to see an evolution in how it's executed. NBA jersey sponsorships, which started this past year in the NBA, are an example of an idea of a jersey, which putting any sort of branding on has been, the jerseys have been sacrosanct in American sports history. That hasn't been the case in Europe, where soccer jerseys have had brand logos plastered over them for years. But jerseys in particular, that that's been interesting. And so that's kind of the next frontier. It's been a success in the NBA. Do you like it on a personal level? It hasn't affected me. Do you I like thought, it on a professional level? <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the, uh, as a sports fan, maybe not, but uh, as, uh, as a marketer, yes. Uh, I appreciate the ingenuity. Well, you know what, that, and that, this actually just triggered a thought, and that this, is, um, this is going back in time probably too far, but wasn't there a um, proposal to put, I think it was Spider-Man webs on the on the on the base major league baseballs. That's right. At a at an all star game. That's right. I, I don't remember specifics, but uh, I remember the the public outcry was uh, was swift and, and vocal. Uh, although I'll say, look, if if the jerseys, if the NBA jerseys happened ten years ago, or if the proposal occurred ten years mm-hmm. ago, maybe it would have been swiftly shot down. But I think we evolve over time. Uh, it, it wouldn't shock me if. The other three major sports, uh, it's maybe being kind to hockey, but if they adopt some sort of similar uh, sponsorship idea in the next 10 years. Who do you think, what do you think the order is? I, I definitely think I know what it is. What do you think it would go with? I would guess, uh, <laughs> I'm going to put baseball last, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I would say hockey and then football and baseball. Hockey just because they could use the uh, some additional revenue. Mm-hmm. Even though the sport's okay, they, they could certainly grow the NFL, public relations issues aside, uh, they'll have to evolve uh, as well. Is there more potential to bring technology into this? And so that's where, and again, I wasn't planning to ask you about uh, spider webs on bases and MLB, but could you do that digitally now? Could you do it with some sort of augmented reality, right? I mean, could you can you do these sponsorships in a way that don't impact certain fans, perhaps? Yeah, and you'll see that. Two examples. One, in certain soccer games, uh, there are essentially digital ad boards on one side of the field that those in attendance are not seeing. They just see green grass, but that's not necessarily the case for the viewers at home. And uh, the NHL has done something similar, where on the plexiglass behind the goals, there is an ad that is essentially facing the TV viewer that those obviously at the arena don't see because it would impede their view of the arena. So... I don't know what the next evolution of that is. I will say from from the perspective of our business, I think the sponsorship endgame will be complete transparency for the sponsors. So there is technology that's being developed, but it exists today, that can recognize logos on screen uh, automatically. So it's computer learning, and it can recognize that racetrack logo on screen. I think someday you will have a customer portal where Racetrack can log in, they can assess all of their views, uh, whether they sponsor a Braves game or the Super Bowl, for a particular a day or a year, 
and then assign a value to that. So it's immediate uh, and thorough transparency in terms of their sponsorships. Yeah, the data is just going to get. I mean, it's probably both a, a benefit to you guys and a curse to you guys, right? The data is just going to continue to explode in size, but it's never going to be. It's never going to be perfect, right? Yes, it's it's a challenge, uh, but it is an opportunity too. A lot of are a lot of sponsorships long term. The, these deals will sometimes go as as long as twenty years. And if you made a deal in the year two thousand, that deal would not be up yet, and yet you probably didn't make social media a significant component. Uh, probably none at all. Facebook wasn't going to be around for another five years. Not to mention Twitter and Instagram. And so I think it's important for sponsors to consider flexibility in those contracts, and it's beneficial for us as agents to help them navigate those changing waters. Yeah, and you know that that's an interesting thing. And again, I don't want to make this too much about Atlanta, but you know the Atlanta market does have a lot of interesting things going on. And as you're talking about sort of making sponsorship deals for an extended period of time, the one that did pop into my head was the uh, the the uh, Hawks naming deal, where um, you know it was what Philips Electronics at the time was a pretty significant consumer brand, and looking back, that deal probably doesn't make the slightest bit of sense anymore, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> there, there's no social media aspects to it. Philips has largely left the American market, and sort of that. Uh, do, do you see people? gearing more towards shorter deals then even? It's certainly, even if there is a premium on a per year basis, I, I think it reduces long-term exposure and it wouldn't surprise me to see a bit more flexibility built into those deals in the future. Nick, I can't, I can't thank you enough for today. Can you tell us what, you, you referenced the Vantage website. What's the URL for that for the folks? That's vantagegroup.com. That's V-A-N-T-E-D-G-E group.com. And, you know, like, like I said, was saying, I, I can't thank you enough for today. I, I, this is one of these topics that I absolutely love because it's, this, again, a great combination of, you know, a lot of analytics, but in the back there's always kind of this intuition and sort of this consumer psychology that drives a lot of this. So thanks so much for coming on today. Of course. I love it, and I, I appreciate the time. And as always, for the listeners, there's more, and you can sort of follow along and some little bit more detailed material related to a lot of analytics topics at the InfluentialAnalytics.com website.